joined us this morning. Uh, we are excited with uh, what God is doing in and through Ephesians. And so as Pastor Tony mentioned earlier, we are getting to uh, the conclusion of the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus. And today, as you know, every time we open the Word of God, we certainly could say this, uh, but today is one of those moments where if you grasp what Paul is teaching us and you apply what Paul is teaching us, it will radically change your life. It will radically change your life. And so today as we look at Ephesians chapter 6, if you will, turn to page 1082, Ephesians chapter 6, page 1082. And we'll see as Paul transitions here <clears throat> towards the end of the letter what he is instructing us and what God is showing us through the letter here in Ephesians. Page 1082 in the Pew Bible. We, if you're uh, here for the first time or you didn't bring a Bible today and you'd like to grab that one in front of you, you're welcome to use that. And you're welcome to take it home and use it if you don't have a Bible or if you know someone who needs a Bible. We want to make sure that we get the Word of God into every hand possible, so you're welcome to use that. So several years ago, uh, we lived in a house, and uh, we had moved in, and so everything, you know, was good, and we, uh, we had an alarm system. And so, you know, we set the alarm, you know, when we were asleep or if we were gone. And, and so as the, uh, you know, we always felt protected, right? You know, everything was okay, you know, the alarm was covering the house, and so if anything happened, the alarm would let us know. Well, one night, the alarm went off in the middle of the night, and so when the alarm goes off, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it's quite alarming. You know, you're dead asleep, and then all of a sudden, you hear sirens going off inside of your house, and you don't know what's going on, or why it's going on, or how it's going on, and so, you know, and being that you're the man of the house, guess what? Nobody's going to turn that off, and nobody's going to check. That's on you. And so, I immediately jump up, and I take off running through the house, not really knowing what I'm going to run into, but I knew one thing, that that siren was really getting on my nerves, and I needed to turn it off, and then, you know, I might have to fight somebody. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. And so, I get to the alarm, I turn it off, and so we check everything, and, you know, of course, we didn't sleep much the rest of the night because, I mean, apparently somebody was trying to get into our house, or so we thought. Because then about every, you know, it was random, it wasn't, you know, in, it, it wasn't patterned, but every so often, it would just go off randomly. And so we, we had some people check it out, and they said, well, I don't know. And so, you know, clearly something was wrong with the alarm. So one night we were asleep again, middle of the night, all of a sudden the alarm goes off again. And so I jump up, and I take off running, and Melanie, my wife, she says, wait a minute. So I'm running, and I turn, and I come back, and I'm like, what? Because I'm thinking, you know, maybe someone's coming in the bedroom window. And she says, is everything okay? I said, I have no idea. I don't know if everything's okay. So I took off running back in and turned the alarm off. So then, you know, we said, you know what? This dumb alarm doesn't work. There's no danger out there. We don't need an alarm. We're just going to leave it off. So middle of the night, fast forward, you know, a month or two later, middle of the night, we hear a noise. So we say, hmm, I wonder what that is. Now remember, we've had all these false alarms, and so, you know, we dismiss it. So we get up and we look out the window, and in our neighborhood, apparently some people decided that they needed things more than our neighbors needed things. 
and they were stealing from all of our neighbors. And so we're watching and thinking, wow, this is crazy. Well, then the police come through, and then they're chasing each other, and I, it, was, it was a whole ordeal. And so then we're thinking, okay, maybe that whole alarm thing was kind of important. You know, maybe we should have paid a little bit more attention to that alarm. I mean, it was a crazy, you know, line of events. And, you know, so as you think about it, as I was preparing for it this week and praying through uh, our time together, I thought, you know, just like that alarm, our life is very similar to that. You know, life is full of danger. Now, you know, as we unpack this, stay with me, because, you know, in our world today, you would say, well, no, no, it's not, you know, you're, you're overreacting. Well, we have become so desensitized to alarms that we no longer pay any attention to the danger that's around us. As we look around in the world today, we see all of the things that are happening, and we have become so desensitized to those things that we don't pay attention or we don't give it the attention that it deserves. You see, Paul here seems to take a turn at the end of his letter. And he is sounding the alarm to the church at Ephesus. And I, I believe as we look at Ephesians 6 today that we could also say that God is sounding the alarm. You see, in the course of the letter, Paul has opened up to the uh, church at Ephesus, and he's explained all of these things, these bright secrets of grace, if you will. He talked about the mystery of their election. He, he talked about the wonder of their salvation. He, he spoke of the spiritual resurrection for the believer, the celebration of the divine power that exists in our lives. He talked about our heavenly positions. He talked about our peace. He talked about our unity. Paul even speaks of our giftedness. And when we hear and we think about all those things that Paul is declaring in the book of Ephesus, we feel really good about ourselves, right? We read Ephesians 2 and we say that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. And we read uh, that Paul mentions in chapter 2 and several other places throughout the letter that, that God uh, calls us into the heavenly places. And that's this lofty thought of all of the good things that God declares for us. And so as he's wrapping up this letter to the church, he now directly addresses what he has alluded to throughout the entire letter, which I will remind us today as you see it with a different set of eyes. You see, in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll pick up in verse 10. This is what Paul writes. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. <clears throat> against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Wait a minute now, time out. What, what, what in the world is Paul saying? What, what happened to all the bright secrets of grace that we've so enjoyed for five chapters now? All of a sudden, Paul says, hey, just so you know, there's danger out there. And so he's declaring that there is danger and that we should be aware of those things that are out there. He's making it very clear. Listen to this. Paul is making it very clear this morning that because 
of the great spiritual blessings that we have been given through Christ, we are now associated with Christ. You see, the devil and God are enemies, right? The Bible teaches us, and we'll get to, that God created everything, all spiritual beings, and the enemy is a spiritual created being. And they are at war with each other. Now, we as believers, we know how this war ends. We've read the last chapter, but the enemy is doing everything that he can to thwart the plans of God in your life. You see, because of your association, because of my association with Jesus, we have become target number one. Listen, if you're not living for God, if you don't claim the name of Jesus, if you're not associated with the things of Christ, then guess what? The enemy is not concerned with you. He's not trying to knock you off course. You see, in John chapter 15 and verse 19, the Bible says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Look at the things that are happening in our world today. You see, you say, well, I don't have any spiritual warfare in my life. Well, then you should probably look in the mirror. That indicates something about your life. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And what's happened in our world today is that so few believers have stood up for the things of God that the enemy has steamrolled the things in which we are to stand for. In your own life and in my life, what's happened is we fail to stand in the victory that God has given us, and we have been attacked, and we didn't even know it. We didn't even know it. You see, the first blank on your handout this morning is a stark reminder as we begin today is that there is a real enemy that is actively working against us. There is a real enemy that is actively working against us. This is a battle that Paul declares here in these verses. And he's saying that it's not just against one enemy. This is what he says. He says that it's against the rulers. It's against the authorities. It's against the cosmic powers. It's against the spiritual forces. And so what Paul is painting is this grand picture of the, uh, the fortitude of the enemy in which we are up against. And he declares that it's the forces and the powers and the rulers and the authorities of evil. That evil, that there is a real enemy that is out to work against you. You see, Paul goes to great lengths to declare the seriousness and the vastness of this battle. In verse 11, he describes this battle as a scheme or a strategy that is used against us. You see, as we think about this scheme or this strategy, there's really only three things that will come against us as believers. You see, first of all, we have sin. Everybody's familiar with that. Sin works against us. Paul says in Romans 7, the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I do want to do, I don't always do. And so sin is working actively against us. But the world systems are working actively against us. You look at, as, as Paul writes even in Ephesians, about the enemy, that he is the, the, the power of, of the, the air, the power of the world. And so the world systems 
we see that are actively working against us, that he set in place these strategies and these schemes. And then, of course, number three, he is actively working against us. Here's the good news, and there's a lot today, is that the enemy can't be more than one place at one time. He can't be, he is not omnipresent. And so as we talk about this, and you'll see at the end, our, our response is not that we would shudder down in our seats and say, well, I'm terrified now because I don't have the power to overcome him. No, there are strategies against us. But God has overcome those as we are going to see. You see, the enemy is not just randomly attacking us. No, that's not what he's doing. He has a strategy that he has developed over thousands of years that he is utilizing against us. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, he says that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. There is a strategy according to John chapter 10 verse 10 which Jesus says that the enemy comes to steal to kill and to destroy there is a strategy that is actively in force against you and me there is a scheme that the enemy is using and so does that mean that the devil is hiding behind every corner and that we should always be looking for his activity maybe you know somebody like that Maybe that's you. You see, here's the danger. Just like with the alarm at our house, I had two choices. I could either be obsessed with any sound, anything that happened in my life, never sleep, constantly live in fear, and always be looking around for any danger that may approach me. Or, on the other hand, I could completely dismiss any sound, I can completely disregard any danger that may be around me and leave myself open and vulnerable to attack. The same is true in this battle that we have with the enemy, that we can make two mistakes as we talk about this this morning. You see, first of all, we can make too much of what's happening in this battle. You know, the the old joke that says, oh, well, the devil made me do it that we would attribute every bad thing to the devil, and we would always say, oh, well, you know, he's always looking for me, and, you know, he's always trying to get me, and always fixating on those things. And so, number one, we can make too much of it, or number two, we could make too little of it, that we could completely dismiss its effect on me. And in your mind this morning already, you've made up in your mind right now which way you go. Either you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know what, this is kind of interesting, and I've never thought about this, and so I probably should press in a little bit. And then there's some of you in the room that have said, you know what, this doesn't apply to me. But oh, would you be mistaken? You see, both of these problems are equally dangerous. And so what is Paul instructing us to do here? How can we work through this this morning? Well, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us that what you see is not what you get. What you see is not what you get. And so if you look around in your life, and if you're doing a mental inventory right now, you're saying, well, I'm not being attacked. You know, I don't have those things happening in my life. Oh, beware. Paul is saying what you see is not what you get. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, the things that you see in front of you is not 
the complete totality of what is actually happening in your life. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen, those are eternal. You see, for a lot of people in the world today, we only react and respond to what we see. And so Paul is saying, in other words, that you may not hear the alarms, but you better be on alert. Because according to the Bible, there is more than what we can just see. As we think about this picture and this battle that goes on, the Bible basically declares, and we could spend a very long time on this, but the Bible basically declares that there, are, uh, there is God that is sovereign, that is overall, He's omnipotent, He's all-powerful, He's omniscient, He's all-knowing, He's omnipresent, He can be everywhere at any time, all the time. And so the Bible declares that God is, a, is the God, that there is no other God above Him. But the Bible also declares in many, many places that there are created spiritual beings. And they exist in the spiritual realm. And so you have God, and then you have the created spiritual beings, and then you have us. You have the physical world in which we exist in. And the Bible declares each of these together and apart in many different places. And so the Bible describes that God is overall. He is the one who is sovereign. He is over this heavenly realm that Paul alludes to here, this spiritual world. And of course, God is over the physical world. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you'll remember, this is what Paul said in chapter 2. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. He says, in which those sins that we walked once according, uh, that we once walked following the course of this world, remember the systems that are against us, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So what Paul is saying here is that there is a spiritual world that is working against us. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, to bring to light, verse 9, for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, which is salvation uh, for Gentiles who created all things. And then he says in verse 10 on the screen, he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to who? What does he say? To the rulers and the authorities, and where are they? In heavenly places. That the wisdom of God, that the things that God is doing in your life and my life, that the life that we live because of what Jesus has done would be known in the heavenly places. Wait a minute, time out. You, you see what I'm saying? That just before our very eyes here, Paul has been declaring this reality the entire letter. So here is the summation of what Paul is saying is that the battle that we are in, this is a battle between good and evil. It is a battle for God's glory in your life and a battle for you to live out the purpose in which God has created you for. Now, if you think about this battle, you may start thinking, well, you know, a lot of bad things happen to me. I must be pretty important, right? 
We could think that way. But here's a sobering thought for you. You, me, we're actually personally of no interest to the enemy. It is only as you relate to Jesus that you assume significance in his eyes. You see, his only interest, if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've never received the forgiveness that Jesus has provided for us, what he is intent upon doing is blinding you to the truth of Jesus. What he wants to do is to prevent you from knowing the truth that God loves you, that God sent his son to pay the ultimate price for you so that you could have a relationship with him. And he will do everything within his power to prevent you from doing that. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, guess what the enemy is doing to you? What the enemy is doing to you is he is trying his very best to get back at Jesus through you. As we read in the book of Job, the Bible says that Job, of course, was a follower of Jesus. He was a believer in God. And the enemy wanted to do everything that he could to attempt to get Job to curse God, to get back at God for following him. You see, as we, we think about this battle that the enemy is so crafty at using against us, as I thought about this and I thought about the experiences of my own life, if you look around the world today, this is something that's tossed aside. This is something that's made fun of. This is something that is uh, made to be less of. And, and here's the result of that, is that most, even believers, listen to me, do not be deceived this morning. Most people are fighting a blindfolded battle. You have no idea who the enemy is, what the enemy is doing. You're not fighting the correct enemy. And some of you are fighting one another. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And when you make a person your enemy, you have been distracted. When you make a person your arch nemesis, when you make a person the embodiment of evil in your own mind, what you've done is you have changed the battlegrounds and you have made it about people and not about Jesus. Tim Keller writes on this and he says that the enemy uses two things against us. This is so good. He says that the enemy uses two things against us. Number one, he uses temptation. He uses temptation. And, and this is how Keller describes temptation. He says that what, God, what the enemy uses in temptation is that he inflates our image of ourselves and he deflates God's holiness. That's what temptation is, is that you inflate yourself and you deflate God. Well, how does that result in temptation? Because what happens in temptation when I do this is I think that I deserve the sin that I'm about to participate in. And I think that God is not going to do anything about it. That I am deflating the holiness of who God is. Not only does the enemy use temptation against us, which we're all very familiar with, but the enemy also uses accusation. He uses accusation. Keller writes this. He says that in accusation, the enemy does the opposite. In accusation, he deflates our image of ourselves and he inflates God's wrath and holiness. 
In other words, an accusation, what the enemy does is he makes us feel unworthy and causes us to be afraid of God. You see, temptation and accusation are very, very present in every one of our lives. And as we think about this battle that we're engaged in, if we look back to what uh, the, the origination of sin, I think it'll give us a great picture this morning of, well, okay, all right, I'm with you. There's a battle that we're engaged in, and now I'm starting to see how this unfolds. How can I, how can I fight against this? What is my part in this? Well, I think it's instructive for us to go back to the very beginning of Genesis and see how the enemy is introduced And I think this will tell us a whole lot about how he works. You see, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, the Bible says that the serpent, he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So I want to be very clear this morning. He is created, which means he is subservient to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this message, again, is not meant to alarm you to fear. It is alarm you to attention. You see, God made the enemy. And the Bible says that he was very crafty. And the, the uh, prophets throughout the Old Testament talk about, Revelation as well, talks about that in heaven that, the, uh, that, that Lucifer, he, Satan, he felt like he was better than he was. He inflated himself. And he deflated God. And so this battle ensued. And of course, he lost. And Revelation says that he was tossed out of heaven. He was banned from heaven. And Revelation says that a third of the stars fell, which is an indication that some of the spirit world went with the devil. Now, don't, again, do not be alarmed. The Bible declares in many places that there are infinitely more angels than there are evil against us. And so here's this battle that ensued. The enemy lost. God kicked him out of heaven. And so now what is he doing? He is doing everything that he can to destroy God's creation. Think about it. Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our own image. And so now because of that, the image of God has become the attack and the target of the enemy. And he again is very crafty. So in Genesis 1, it says the serpent was very crafty. And, and as he, in Genesis 1, as he began to attack Eve, look what happens. It says in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, or in verse 1, he was crafty, and God created him. And he said, did God actually say, we've heard this many, many times, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden. And the woman said, we may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the garden that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows, verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, what the enemy did is he attacked Eve, and I want you to be very clear what happened here. Look where he attacked her. He attacked her where she was vulnerable. Think about it. Everything, listen to this. This, this, is, this, is, this is amazing as I thought about this. Everything in Eve's life up until this point that had ever been said to her was true. Think about it. Everything, it was perfection in the garden. Everything that God had said to her, the Bible says that they would walk with God in the cool of the day. Everything that she had ever heard was true. And so what did he do? He distorted the area in which she was vulnerable, which was to truth. 
And so here she is, she's being deceived, and deception is brand new to her. For someone to try and to deceive her was not something that she had never experienced before. And why did it work? It worked because she didn't know she was vulnerable. She didn't know deception was going to be used against her. And here's what happens in our own lives. We say, okay, look, I know that there's an enemy out there, but here's what most people do. You defend against things that are common for other people. You do. We, we're often about that. We think we have an inflated view of ourselves, and we think, well, you know, the devil's not going to get me. He's not going to trip me up. He's not going to tempt me. He's not going to use that against me. And why do we say that? Because we've seen victory in someone else's life and not declared it in our own lives. It's true. Listen to me this morning. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm trying to help you. It is not that we would look to other people. We should be encouraged by that, but we shouldn't assume that identity. Why is that? What is normal for everybody else? Addiction, lying, deceit, stealing, language, pornography, lust, whatever those things may be. And you look to the lives of other people and you say, I have victory in my life from those things. But guess what? Those things may not be the things that tempt you right? They may not be the things that that are luring you in. And so you look to other people and you say, I have victory over, over sin in my life of the sin that strangles you, but it doesn't tempt you. These may not be your weak points. Paul says here, and this is why, he says, we wrestle. We wrestle with those things. That's very personal, I was a member of a gym several years ago, and they had a, a jujitsu, I guess you would say, dojo or whatever there. And so every day I would go in, you would have to pass the dojo. And, and uh, so, you know, the guys were in there doing jujitsu, which is, uh, I don't mean to diminish jujitsu. So if you're in jujitsu, I will probably say this incorrectly, but wrestling on the ground. And, uh, and so every day I would pass by the door to, to the dojo, and he would say, hey, you know, you should come and you should take some lessons And I said, oh, no thanks. Oh, you should come and take some lessons. And I said, look, if you ever see me on the ground wrestling around with another man, call the police. There's a problem, right? It becomes very, very personal when that happens, right? I mean, you better be wearing deodorant if you're going to do jujitsu. I mean, you're going to stink. And so Paul is saying, look, we wrestle This is not just battle terminology. To wrestle makes it very, very personal. You see, this battle is very personal. And guess what? We will be attacked in the areas that we struggle with. He's not going to attack you in an area that is not a temptation to you. He's smarter than that. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to find a weak point in your life. He's going to find an area of your mind or your heart, and he's going to exploit that the best that he possibly can do. You see, we can't, we can't be all upset about Eve because here's the deal. It was never intended to be this way. It was never intended to be this way. What, what Eve thought she was getting was what she saw. And so often in our lives, just like Pastor Tony talked about last week, that we mimic things, that we mimic what other people are doing instead of experiencing those those things in our own lives. 
that we, we think that everything is supposed to be roses and daisies, that we think we still live in Mayberry. But listen, we don't live in Mayberry anymore. And if you look around in the world, everything, it seems, is against the believer. And so, so as we look at that and we see those things, what is the believer doing in the world today? Well, it seems as though that the believer is cowering and cowering and cowering further down under the pressure of the enemy. Because we think that what we see is what we get. But that's not the way that it was intended to be. You see, what Genesis teaches us is here is how you will be attacked in your life. This is not on your handout. You may want to write it down. Here's what's going to happen in your life. That the enemy is going to attack you through disguise. He is going to attack you through disguise. He didn't walk up to Eve with a pitchfork and horns and say, hey, good morning, I'm the devil, I'm here to tempt you. That is not what happened. He was a serpent, the Bible says. And so she, you know, through deception thought, hey, this is just some other creature. You see, evil rarely looks like evil until it accomplishes its goal. It is going to gain entrance by appearing very attractive in your life, very desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. He's going to come and disguise in your life. He is going to use an area of your life that you never would have imagined. Number two, he's going to come unexpectedly. He's not going to send you a letter in the mail and say in October on the 17th, we're going to fight. It's not like a pay-per-view fight where everybody sits in front of the television and waits for it to come on. That is not what's happening. It is going to be very unexpected in your life. Eve was not aware of this. It became very unexpected. And last but not least, which I think is equally as important, is that it came from a subordinate in her life. Here is someone that she thought was below her, someone that she thought was beneath her. You see, in our own lives, what does that teach us? That we think we have the power to overcome. Why is that? Because we think we're in control. We are going to be attacked in areas that we think that we are in control of. But why is that? Because it is a battle for control. It is a battle for control. And so what Satan did is he used his craftiness to take advantage of them. So let's, let's rewind for a second. You know, sometimes, I say, I say sometimes, a lot of times, a lot of times I'll be studying the Word of God or preparing for a message, and God just blows your mind. Well, for me, this is one of those moments. This is one of those moments where you, you think, how in the world, in the perfection of God, does this say what it says? All right, look, look what he said. Look what happened. How did we get to this point? This is fascinating. How did we get to the point of Eve being deceived and Eve sinning? What happened right before Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1? Well, if you look in your Bible, if you look in your Bible in chapter 2, what does the Bible say? I'm going to put it on the screen. What does this say? This is the last verse of chapter 2. And in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And the serpent was crafty. Look, look, look what 2 says, the very last verse. The man and his wife were both naked, 
And they were not ashamed. That's the South Mississippi word, naked, right? They were both naked. And they were not ashamed. Look at this. We find out that Adam and Eve are naked. They are distracted. We got a marriage series, a marriage conference coming up. And so they were distracted. Why were they distracted? Well, they were together and they were naked. Do the math, all right? They were distracted. All right? But guess what else? They were exposed. They were exposed. You see, when we are distracted, guess what happens? We don't see danger. We don't hear alarms going off. And guess what happened in their exposure? They were attacked and they were defeated. They were exposed and so they were attacked and they were defeated. So often in our own lives, listen, here's what we do. We teeter on the line of sin, seeing how much we can get away with. How far can I go? How close to the line can I get? And what happens in our life is that when we associate with sin, it leads to exposure with the enemy. In our own lives, when we associate with sin, when we get as close to the line as we can, it leads to exposure. You see, when we don't guard against sin, we open ourselves up to attack. How do we do that? Well, here's some examples. The things that we say. The things that we think. If we were to put my thoughts or we were to put your thoughts up on the screen, how many of you would never come back, right? We would say, I'm not coming back. They know the things that I'm thinking, right? The things that we think. How about the words that we say? How about the words that we say? How about the things that we allow in our minds and our hearts? All of these things have an effect on us, and guess what they do? They can expose us unnecessarily. Here's one of my pet peeves, and it's just Matt's soapbox, so take it how you want. The movies that we watch. Why are we so fascinated with evil in movies? I'll tell you why. It is a strategy to desensitize you to the reality of the work of the devil. The movies that we watch, the things that we say can open doors in your life that were never intended to be open. And your sin doesn't just affect you. It affects those that you're responsible for and those you are associated with. The side of your handout says we are family. And when you expose yourself to those things, you are exposing us to those things. You see, God knew that this would be a battle. And so what did he do? Well, Adam and Eve, it says in verse 25, that they were naked. And then they sinned. So what did God do? This is the part that blows my mind. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21 that the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin. And guess what he did for them? He clothed them. Don't miss this this morning. He clothed them. God covered their exposure. He covered their exposure. So let's go back to our text in verse 10. What does it say? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. He says to be strong here. I don't have to be strong if I'm not going to be attacked. 
right? If I need you to be steady, I'm going to say, hold steady. If I need you to be strong, I'm going to say, be strong. Paul says, be strong. You're going to be attacked. And this is what he says in verse 11. Here's where it all ties together. The Bible says in Genesis 3, 21, that they were naked, right? Verse 25 in chapter 2, and then they sinned. And what does God do? The Bible says that he clothed them. And then we get to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11. And if this don't light your fire, your wood's wet. This is what he says. He says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Man, this is good. You're about to get a South Mississippi preacher preaching this morning. What does, what does put on mean? It means to be clothed. Oh my gosh. It is the Greek version of the same Hebrew word that is used in Genesis. So he is saying, be clothed with the armor of God. Just as God clothed Adam and Eve, he has provided a way for us to be clothed this morning. Listen, that ought to make you want to charge hell with a water pistol. Because what that does is it tells us the reality that in spite of this battle, in spite of all of the enemy's tactics, and they're really good, and they overpower you and me on our own, but in spite of all of that, there is a God in heaven who loves us and knew that we would be exposed and knew in our nakedness we would be attacked. And he said, no problem, I can cover that. In verse Four of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Bible says that while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Same author, Paul, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that the mortal would be swallowed up by life. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, the one who conquers, listen to me, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Believer, this morning, what do we have to do? If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, what do we have to do to be clothed? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Because in Isaiah, this is what the Bible teaches. I greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has done what? What has he done? He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Praise the Lord. He has clothed me when I could not cover myself. He has clothed me when I could not atone for my sin. He has clothed me when I was attacked and exposed to things that I didn't even know existed. He has clothed me. And he has covered me. Believer, this is for you. What has he done? He has covered me. How has he covered me? With the robe of righteousness. Not with how close can I get to sin. Not how much can I get away with and God still love me. That, but that I would pursue Jesus and his righteousness. That I would pursue purity. That I would pursue cleanliness. That I would pursue godliness. That I would be who God wanted me to be. Because why? Because he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. If you are not saved this morning... How can you be clothed? Well, the answer is to be clothed in the salvation of Jesus. Otherwise, you will be defeated and destroyed. 
Isaiah declares that if you are saved, it is Jesus who has clothed us with salvation. So for us, it is to be covered in the robe of righteousness to pursue Jesus. He is the only one who can defend you. So what is my part then? How do I play a role in this journey? Well, the command, the command is not to march on, but it's to stand firm. He says to stand next week as we get into the uh, pieces of armor. He goes on and he repeats to stand, that we would use these pieces of armor in our life for the glory of God. So not that we would march on, but that we would stand firm. Several years ago, I was tubing the Pigeon River. Basically, East Tennessee is the Garden of Eden for me. It's amazing. I love it. And so we were tubing the Pigeon River. And, uh, you know, we we're on, you know, inner tubes. We we're just floating the river. And so when you get, if you've, if you've never done that, you get to the end of your float. And, you know, it's shallow water. And, uh, you know, there's a place where you can get out or you can keep going. And so they'll have a place where they come pick you up. And so we're floating. And, you know, we get to the end. And so we all get out and grab our tubes. And we're starting to, to leave the water. Well, there we look over and and there's a lady that's just flailing like she's going crazy and she's screaming, help me, help me, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And so we look over and we think, what is happening over here? And, and we look, I mean, she is full out panic mode. And so her husband's there with her and so, you know, we're watching this unfold and so she's screaming, you know, help, help, help. And so her husband looks over to her and he says, stand up. So all of a sudden, she realized, oh, and so she stood up, and the water's like, you know, below her waist. Stand up. You see, here's this lady in knee-deep water, and she thought she was drowning. But all she had to do was stand up. You see, standing up in this, in this water, it didn't stop the water from flowing Look, standing up didn't th keep things from coming in her direction. Here's what it did. It changed the effectiveness of what was coming in her direction. All of that water that was rushing by her legs meant nothing when she stood up. It meant nothing. It didn't overcome her. Paul says here, to stand, to be strong. It's a passive imperative. He says, find your strength in God. And what he's calling for here is that we would breathe out our dependence upon ourselves <clears throat> and we would breathe in God's mighty power that we would stand to receive the strength from an outside source. Not that we would make ourselves strong, but that we would receive from God what we need in order to be strong. As I thought about this, I thought about this battle. And a lot of people are on a tube in life. And they're just going wherever the water is taking them. And sometimes the water is raging. And you think, I can't stop this. I can't do anything about this. I don't control the water. And you're absolutely right. You don't. What you control is yourself. And you control your response to that water. And just like the lady that was flailing off in the water and three feet deep water, all she had to do was stand up and realize, you know what? I can overcome this. I've been given the ability to do what I didn't think I could do. 
I have the ability to overcome what I did not think I could overcome. And so as this battle rages within us, may we look to Jesus as we look around at the world. Here's what you find. You find a world that is desperate and trying to extinguish the flame of the gospel. It is so apparent that the enemy is determined to distort and to dilute and to deceive us into believing that sin is very appealing and that God is not appealing. It has become so incredibly difficult in our world today to see what is real and what is true. Reality has become so distorted. But here's the good news. Our mission hasn't changed. Our master hasn't failed. And we are not alone. Paul writes that our weapons of warfare in this battle are not of the flesh, but they have what? Divine power to destroy strongholds. Listen, if you're here this morning and there is a stronghold of sin in your life, all you have to do is stand up. All you have to do is receive the strength that God has already made available for you. That you need to declare that these strongholds that are present in your life do not have the power to overcome you. How do we know that? Because the Bible declares in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world today. And so that we would stand in the victory that God has given us, that we would stop fighting this battle in our own strength. That we would allow God to expose the sin that is in our lives. Listen, everybody has sin, so stop pretending you don't. That we would allow God to expose it. And that we would run to Jesus, the only one who can cover the sin. For it is Him who sits on the throne at the right hand of our Father. It is King Jesus who is our only hope. He is the only one that is worthy of of our praise. And so Paul is declaring this morning, be strong. Live as a victor in what Jesus has done for you. This morning, what Paul is encouraging us to do is to resolve to be a people who saturate ourselves with the things of God so that we would stand in the victory that was provided for us by Jesus. Listen, this morning, I don't know where you stand in the battle. But because you're breathing, I know you're in the battle. And I don't know what victory looks like in your life. And I don't know what defeat looks like in your life. I don't know what your association with sin is. And I don't need to know what your association with sin is. But here's here's what I do know. That there is a God in heaven who knows everything about you. He created you, He loves you, and He knows all the things that no one else knows. All of those sins that you keep captured in your mind or so you think, all the things that you participate in that you think have no effect on you, God knows those things. And the beauty of God knowing that is that there's an opportunity for you to confess those things and yet be loved. That is the mystery of the gospel, is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so this morning, I'm not asking you to come to me or to Pastor Tony and say, here's the sins in my life, and here's what, I, no, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to go to the one who can cover those sins. I'm asking you to go to Jesus. 
Maybe where you're at, maybe you come to the altar that you declare to God, God, would you please forgive me for these things? The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, 1 John 1, 9, and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Today, if you say, I can't go to the altar because people will know that I'm a sinner, where you're just as much a liar in your pew than you are a confessor at the altar. Right? Listen, let's just be honest with us. There's a battle, and we need to to combat arm in arm. We need warriors to stand in the kingdom. We don't need people to declare that they're defeated. We don't need people to declare that sin has caught them down because you and I have been given the victory. Listen, this mantle is too heavy to carry alone. We can't do this on our own. Jesus has made the way. Stand up, believer, and what God has declared to be true about you. On the back of your handout, when you go to community group today, here's what you're going to leave knowing, that you are loved, that you are forgiven, and that you are more than a conqueror, Romans 8, 37, through Jesus Christ who saved you. Live like that. And how do you do it? It starts with confession and saying, Jesus, I've been exposed. I've been uncovered. I've allowed things into my life that don't belong there. But God, I know that you love me. And God, I know that you promised that you would never leave me or forsake me. And so in the midst of my confession, Jesus, I run to you because it's the only thing that I know I can do. It's the only way that I know that I can be closed. God, would you cover our exposure this morning? God, we bow before your throne. God, we declare the reality that we have messed things up. God, whether it was intentional, whether it was unintentional, God's sin has so trapped us and so entangled us and so ensnared us, and we are living such an impotent life, the opposite of what you have declared to be true about us. Oh, God, God, this morning, Would you convict us of those things? God, we confess that we don't want to pretend. God, we confess that we don't want to do this on our own. God, we confess that we can't do this on our own. Oh God, would you convict us of the reality and the seriousness of our sin? Because in conviction, God, there's victory through forgiveness if we come to you. So, Lord, may we run to you. God, would you clothe those this morning who are exposed? God, would you forgive us for trying to do it our own way? And God, would you empower us to do it your way, for your glory, for the fame of Jesus, in his name that we pray today. Amen. As we stand for invitation. Maybe you need to pray where you're at. Maybe you need to come to the altar. Whatever God.